Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Our reading this morning is from Numbers um, chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 19, and then continuing from verse 47 through to chapter 2, verse 2, and then on to chapter 10, verses 33 to 36. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who were 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army, one man from each tribe. Each of them, the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. From Reuben, Elizer, son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zerushadai. From Judah, Nashon, son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Nathanel, son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishama, son of Amihud. From Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Padazur. From Benjamin, Abidan, son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahizer, son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, son of Okran. From Gad, Eliasaph, son of Deuel. From Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been specified, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families, and the men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. Continuing from verse 47 of chapter three, chapter two. The ancestral tribe of the Levites, however, was not counted along with the others. The Lord had said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant law, over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and camp round it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down, and whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each of them in their own camp under their standard. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents round the tabernacle of the covenant law so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the covenant law. The Israelites did all this just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, 
the Israelites are to camp round the tent of meeting some distance from it, each of them under their standard and holding the banners of their family. Turning now to chapter 10, starting from verse 33. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Um, thank you, Andrea. I think you probably deserve a medal uh, for those names in chapter one. I don't know whether you noticed, but during the reading, we heard about a census of um, about 603,000 names. So just be thankful that we didn't have that included in scripture this morning. It could have been worse. Uh, let's pray. Father, we want to echo Johnny's prayer again. Help us to stand firm in faith and to fix our eyes on you, the God who is in our midst, leading us home. We pray this for our good and for your glory. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, um, no doubt you'll be aware of the sorry scenes that we've been seeing coming out of Afghanistan recently. Um, after the Taliban were ousted, uh, what is it about, uh, I can't remember now, 10, 20 years ago, um, the U.S. committed to nation-building with its partners, trying to reconstitute the nation of Afghanistan. And I guess it thought that it had done its job well, that it had trained the national uh, security forces of Afghanistan uh, to take on any threats that came their way. And yet we've seen a rapid collapse, haven't we? breathtaking speed with which everything has fallen apart over the last few weeks. Well, it's a depressing picture, a depressing piece of news. And people often feel the book of Numbers is similarly depressing because it tells a similar tale. The nation of Israel has been gathered, rescued from Egypt at the Passover, taken to Mount Sinai, where they are constituted around God, under his rule, ready to then press on towards the promised land, now in numbers. But as we move on from Numbers 1 to 10, where everything seems to be going well, where the nation is, as it should be, constituted around God, ready for the march, ready for its future... As we move on from Numbers 1 to 10, things go downhill with breathtaking speed. Instead of a march to victory, the book of Numbers as a whole tells a sorry story of defeat after defeat. When we get there in chapter 11, we'll see the people immediately, almost the, the first steps on their journey towards the promised land, prove mistrustful of God. They take it out on their leaders. The leaders themselves prove divisive and power hungry. And to top it all off, when the whole nation finally does get near to the border of Canaan, rather than destroying the Canaanites, 
they jump into bed with them, literally, joining in an orgy in which the Moabites invite Israelite men to worship their gods, their false gods. It's a shocking picture then, this book, of a nation constituted around God for greatness, but which quickly falls into distrust, division, dysfunction. Does that sound familiar? It's not a bad description of, well, every church in its worst moments, is it? Even our church at times, constituted around God to be his holy nation among the nations, but always held back from that calling by our sin. Numbers is often treated as a book with little relevance to Christians. I wonder, is it your favorite book? I asked this yesterday to the small group leaders, and not one of them said Numbers was their favorite book, of course. Who, who reads Numbers? Um, it's the poor cousin of the Pentateuch, isn't it? This body of five books compiled largely by Moses at the start of our Bibles. But its lessons remain as relevant as ever for God's people. As long as people are people. Because the truth is we don't change, not in our fundamentals, even if outwardly our cultural dress has changed. We recently studied Hebrews. Do you remember how the writer to the Hebrews over a millennium after these wilderness wanderings says to the Christians in his day, your journey to the new Jerusalem, it's like their journey in numbers through the wilderness. And he warned the Christians there to see to it that none of them had a sinful, unbelieving heart like, like these Israelites did who perished in the desert. Well, another two millennia have passed, but the warnings of numbers are as urgent and relevant as ever. Paul writes about them in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says this, These things happened to them, back then in numbers, as examples, and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Written for us. One of you, after a sermon on Psalm 51 over the summer, asked, do we really have to keep on hearing that we're sinners? And it's a fair question. There is much more to say, isn't there? But, you know, these things in numbers, they're not told to depress us or to demonize us, but rather to deepen our understanding of the temptations that are common to all of us throughout history. The temptations that will threaten to disorder us as God's people, to derail our fight for the work of God's kingdom. And ultimately, these things are told to us to help us stand firm for the fight and press on. And in fact, you know, Numbers doesn't end on a depressing note at all. That's good news, isn't it? By November, we'll be seeing good news again. Because by the end of the book, God is still leading the march to Canaan. And there's still hope for the future. Um, did you see what Tom Tugendhat, the Tory MP, um, said about the situation in Afghanistan? He served two, two tours there. And he commented on the real reason for the defeat of the Afghan forces there. He said this. 
10,000 NATO soldiers were maintaining a force of some 400,000 Afghan troops. But as we left, we stripped them effectively of their combat power and convinced them that there was no tomorrow. What can I say that despite, despite his people's dysfunction, despite their disastrous rebellion and outrageous spiritual adultery, we're going to see that God is not for turning. Generations come and go. Leadership comes and goes. But by the end of the book, God is still leading the march. This is a, this is a hopeful book. Because his power and presence are still guaranteeing the fulfillment of all his promises to his beloved people. Yes, Numbers is a book that helps us see our dysfunction, our sin, with clarity. To analyze it carefully. But ultimately, it's a book that helps us press on despite our dysfunction. Trusting and hoping in God. Stand firm in your faith. So then the big structure of the book goes chapters 1 to 10, order, ordered around God. Chapters 11 to 25, disorder, disordered by sin. But finally, chapters 26 to 36, reordered for God's promises in the future. It's a great book for us this term, as we seek to work through all that's happened amongst us recently, but as we look to move on as well to the future in hope and faith. We're going to be looking at big chunks here on Sunday. You might have noticed that from the reading. And then hopefully you're going to have a chance to dig deeper into them in your small groups. And one of the many reasons, I guess, then to join a small group if you haven't yet. We're not going to cover everything, obviously. But with two bites at the cherry on Sundays and in your small groups, hopefully we will be able to dig really deep into this book. Today's an overview of chapters 1 to 10, where we see the people readied for their victory march to Canaan. And then next week, Matt's going to come and delve into the heart of chapters 1 to 10, chapters 5 to 6. So look out for that next week. Now, like I said, chapters 1 to 10, they're the marching orders for God's people. His victory march, as it should be. An ideal people of the Uh, an ideal picture of the people of God gathered around him. And the big point this morning is just this. Everybody get ready to fight. Everyone get ready to fight with God in your midst leading the march. We'll break that down bit by bit. First then, everyone get ready to fight. Chapter one is a census. Did you see that? But notice there, it's not a general census of the whole population. Look again, verses 2 and 3. Did you see who it's a census of? Verse 2. Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count, according to their divisions, all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. It's a military census. And there's a strong emphasis on this census being taken from all the community. Corporately, individually, all the community is being prepared to fight. Verse 2 again. The whole Israelite community. Every man 
by name, one by one. It's really striking when you think about it. You know, there's no qualification for joining God's army here other than being male and the right age. The people are being prepared for battle, for conquering Canaan, but there's no military training given here or in anywhere else in numbers. In fact, there's no military training needed, and we'll see why later. You know, even relative to contemporary armies, this is actually a very unusual picture. We've got documents from Egypt from uh, the same period that show us the number of soldiers in Egypt, which was the superpower of its day, the numbers of their army were only 20,000. Their army was professional, only a small portion of the male population, but here every man is called to fight. It's as if God is saying, look, to be a member of my people in the desert means to take up arms, whoever you are. And that's why the number comes out so big in the end. Verses 45 to 46 of chapter 1. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was not 20,000 like in Egypt, but 603,550. Our name for the book, Numbers, it comes from these censuses. And just as with some of the laws that we're going to see throughout the book, this is hardly the kind of literature that gets the pulse racing, is it? But the point being made here is very profound. And it's a point that is picked up and reinforced in the New Testament. As members of God's people, we are all called to fight. Now that becomes even more true in the New Testament. Paul writing to the Ephesian church, writing to men and women and children, says this. Get ready to fight. Our fight is different. We're not called to literally take up arms. And when the church has been confused on that and taken up arms, it's done untold damage. So don't be confused. That's not what I'm saying, obviously, I hope. But the New Testament is clear. We are all called to fight. Hear these words from Ephesians 6. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yes, the fight is different now, but the fight is real. And the fight is for all of us. We're all called to be The church militant. That's how the old language used to put it. The church militant. It's language that's fallen out of use. It's not fashionable anymore. Um, But it rightly describes our journey of faith today. One day, the old language said, one day in the future when it's all over, we will be the church triumphant. But we're not yet. For now, we're the church militant. The fight is still on. The fight against, well, the devil and sin. 
the fight to keep the faith. Our call to arms is not to slay God's enemies as it was for the Israelites, because unlike them, we're not in a time of judgment. Not yet. No, for us, today is the, well, it's the time of favor, the day of salvation. So our fight is not to put to death with steel and sword, but to bring to life through the sword of the Spirit, to bring people to new life in Christ. Our fight is different, but it is a fight for all of us, everyone, corporately, the whole community, individually, every person, name by name, on the roll call of the forces of God in his world. There are other censuses and lists in these opening 10 chapters. Censuses of Levites in chapters 3 to 4 that you might dip into. Uh, lists of the offerings brought by the Israelites in chapter 7. You might get a chance to think about those in your small groups, but don't feel you have to master every detail. Of course you don't. There's too much here. And especially don't worry if you can't pronounce all their names. But do, do try to grasp what what these lists would have meant for the people on the ground represented by them, corporately and individually. The offerings brought in chapter 7 are brought by every tribe, every tribe an equal member of God's people, valued with a valuable contribution to make. The community pictured here does have hierarchy, of course, as we'll see throughout, but there is also a really strong sense of inclusion and equality. Every member numbered, named, known, valued, serving, fighting, contributing. One of the things I always slightly dread um, is when people say of church leaders, he was brilliant, she was brilliant. They knew all our names. And it's particularly painful for me at the moment because I've had a year of being at church, but I've not met any of you. And I'm really struggling to get to know your names. But it does always make people feel included, doesn't it? Welcomed. Makes them want to play their part in the life of the church if they are known. Well, look, now we're back in person, lots of us. I'm, I'm on a drive to remember names. I do keep mixing you up. I called Karen Allison earlier in the week. I keep getting all the Bens confused with all the Sams for some reason. I don't know why. Well, look, I might never get to know all your names. I, I will try. But can I say that each name, each name written in the census lists of God's people is known to him. He knows you. Men, women, children, he knows you. He has numbered you, named you. He knows you. You are his now. And when he called you to his people, he called you to fight. So are you in the fight still? It's a funny thing, the pandemic. For some, I think it might have sharpened our fight, but for many of us, it seems to have done the opposite. The pandemic put so much on pause, didn't it? And even though it didn't need to, it may well have put our spiritual fight on pause. As we hunkered down on our own and turned in on ourselves and forgot about God and his people and his people-building project, 
as we focused on surviving in the moment, did that distract us from the march to the future, the promised land? It might have done. We've been cut off, haven't we, from so many of the normal means that God has given us to find strength for the fight. Look, if you haven't turned up to church yet, I guess this is particularly for the people at home, come. It's so good for us to remember that God is building his people and what better way to remember than to be amongst them. It's worth asking, isn't it? Have we slipped into peacetime mode? Are we still in the fight? Fighting to serve him. Fighting to understand our enemy and his weapons of doubt and deceit. Division and destruction. Apathy and idolatry. We're going to see all of those throughout Numbers. Are we fighting to walk in God's ways and to promote God's word in this world? Are you in the fight? Well, our second and final point. With God in your midst, leading the march. With God in your midst, leading the march. You see, it would be an impossible call to arms, wouldn't it? Just too daunting to get on with if that's all it were, just us trying to fight this enemy. But the picture in Numbers 1 to 10 is not just of God's people preparing for battle, but of God in their midst leading the march. Turn with me to our final bit of the reading, chapter 10, verses 33 to 36. At the end of the chapter, as the people are finally prepared to set out on their way, this is how Moses begins their march. So they set out from the mountain of the Lord and traveled for three days. The ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them during those three days to find them a place to rest. A place to rest. That's where God is taking them ultimately to the promised land, to his place of rest. And actually he gives them little pockets of rest on the way because God has come to do good to them. That's what this march is all about, taking them home to rest. Verse 34, the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he said, return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. Moses' prayer might seem a little distasteful for middle-class Brits who've known nothing of war for many decades now. But if our fight is against a foe more deadly than the Canaanites, with powers far more, well, far-reaching to destroy and devour souls, then don't we need to pray? Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. If we experience his well, his weapons amongst us of division and deceit and apathy and idolatry, then isn't it obvious? Don't we need to pray? May your foes be scattered by you. May they flee before you, Lord. We can't do it. We need you to fight for us. The arrangement of the camp makes this point really strongly back with me now to chapter one. You see, when the census is taken, the Levites 
are excluded. So chapter 1, verse 47. The ancestral tribe of the Levites, however, was not counted along with the others. The Lord had said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant law. The Levites' job is not to fight, but to carry the tabernacle. This tent built at Sinai in Exodus so that God could, as it were, descend from the mountain of Sinai and come and dwell on earth right in the middle of his people. And in chapter 2, we see the arrangement of the camp. And it might be worth trying to draw it out in your groups as you look through the whole of chapter 2 if you get time. God's in the center, and there are three tribes to the north, east, south, and west, 12 in total. God in their midst. I um, went to uh, primary school in Sheila Hume, and uh, I was a terrible football player. I, just, uh, I was quite big for my age back then, so I just stood at the back and tried to get in people's way. But there was one boy on our team, Danny Pugh, and if you're a Leeds supporter or a Man United supporter, you might have heard of him, or if you support Port Vale, I think he's their manager at the moment, Danny Pugh. There were 11 of us on the team, but we, we really only needed one to win. He was amazing. He skipped past all of us as we were blundering, trying to get out of his way, skipped past all of them and, and always scored and always won for us. You see, what makes this fighting force special is not its gigantic numbers compared to the normal armies of its day, though it was gigantic. It's not that it's highly skilled at war. In all the preparation for this march in chapters 1 to 10, not a word about how to fight. No, what makes it powerful, what gives it awesomeness, where its combat power and its hope of victory comes from, it's not its numbers, but from just one source. It's God. God in their midst. Part of the wonder is that this shouldn't be possible. God is so different, so much higher and holier, so transcendent, the jargon goes. He shouldn't be able to dwell amongst us. He dwells outside time and space. He is alone, eternal, immortal, invisible, living in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And yet he is also with us, has come down to us, draws near to us. And above all, don't we see that in Jesus? The word who was with God, who was God, who became flesh, and dwelt among us, literally, who tabernacled amongst us. In Christ, the high and holy God has come close to us, is near us, is in our midst. But you know, even more, it's not just that God is transcendent. That's not the only thing that makes this impossible. He's also utterly good, too pure to look on evil, let alone live amongst it. And tolerate us. There's a hint of that, isn't there, in the end of chapter 1, verses 51 to 53. 
151. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. Whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. Sinners can't just approach a God who is too pure to look on evil. Verse 53, the Levites, however, are to set up their tents round the tabernacle of the covenant law so that my wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites make it possible by standing between God and Israel like a barrier. A big part of their job was to put animals to death to sacrifice them as substitutes for the sinners in Israel who deserved to die, so that they didn't have to die. The animals died so that the Israelites might live. But you know, each animal sacrifice was really just an IOU. Do you ever use IOUs? I don't think we've got many teenagers amongst us this morning, have we? Brilliant for teenagers who have no spending money of their own. IOUs, great for people who can't pay back what they owe. Actually, an IOU is just an acknowledgement that you do owe something. And so with the Levitical sacrifices, they didn't pay the price of sin. They just acknowledged that there was a debt to pay. Because, of course, rejecting the giver of life, which we've all done in a thousand ways, costs you your life. But again, now in Christ, payment has been made. And now at last, God can dwell in our midst like never before, without wrath, without death, but simply as the giver of life. In Christ, he can dwell closer than he ever has done before. Uh, These tribes had to keep their distance, 2 verse 2. They had to keep their distance. But now God, by his spirit, comes and dwells in our very midst, in our very hearts. Perhaps, though, it's easy to be jealous of what they had back then. I mean, they had so much to see and touch to show them that God was in their midst. What do we have? I mean, we're not even meeting in a glorious church building anymore, but in a kind of well, slightly crumbling sports hall. Look around. We're so few in number. We're not very impressive. Our tech doesn't work very well. Is God really in our midst? They had the tabernacle and the cloud and the fire, lampstands symbolizing God's presence, trumpets calling God to war on their behalf. You'll see all of those if you read through 7 to 10. Do you wish you could have been there with all the theater? By the end of Numbers, I assure you, you won't wish you could have been there. Because the devastating effects of sin were never actually dealt with by those things. But we have Christ, Christ who has satisfied God's wrath at the cross, Christ who has died that we might live and draw near and stay alive forever. We have the promise of Christ that as we set about making disciples in this world, he is with us even to the end of the age. Isn't that more precious? Christ in our midst, leading the charge. He will build his church. That's what he's promised. We can't see it with our eyes like they could, but by faith, we must know that it is far greater than anything they had then. 
I wonder, what makes, what makes us proud as a church? What gives us confidence as a church? Looking around at the people? If it does, this morning when there are so few of us, then we'll be shaky in our confidence, won't we? Maybe it's looking at our tribal heads, our human leaders, our modern Moseses, Miriams and Aarons or Aarons. Is that what gives us hope for the future? Well, if it does, it really shouldn't. And if it does, maybe you've been unsettled by all the things that have gone on amongst us. Paul resigning, the staff team proving very fallible, as we are. Maybe you're sick of talking about that, though. Maybe you're just oblivious to it. Numbers will teach us there's nothing unusual about the kind of dysfunction that we have experienced as a church and a leadership team. But it is desperately sad and damaging all the same. It is right to feel miserable about it if you do. But can I say that if you found yourself losing hope because of it, then you've hoped in the wrong person. Dynamic leaders, rich resources, large numbers, those aren't bad things to have. They're good. Numbers makes it clear that God is building towards a people who are mighty in number like the stars in the sky that can't be counted. But it's not their size that makes them something special. But the one who is in their midst. That is a massive relief for me as a leader. But it's also a big challenge. Because it means that it's not the power of my sermons or my rhetoric that will do you any good if there is any power in it which there might not be this morning I'm feeling a bit sleepless at the moment it's not my power it's God's Christ will build his church he leads the fight and that's a challenge because it means that I need to get on my knees and pray please pray for my prayers for you Moses prayed Rise up, O Lord. I wonder, how's your prayer life? Do you think you can do this alone? You can't. You won't last 10 minutes without God's help. Are you still praying? You know, the biggest failures in numbers are not military failures. They're not even the disobedience to God's commands, deadly though those failures prove to be in numbers. But God himself points forward to the way back from disobedience, atonement and forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice. So no, the biggest failures are not disobeying God. The biggest failures come from disbelieving that God is really amongst us, really for us really wants us, is really protecting us, will really provide for us, will really come good on his promises to us. The biggest failures are not disobedience, but disbelief in God. That's the big challenge of numbers. If we are tempted to disbelieve, actually, do you know, it shows that our great enemy is gaining the upper hand because there's no good reason for disbelief. Doubt is the devil's victory. And if we feel him winning the battle, then we need to get on our knees and pray. Why don't we do that as we close? Because we need God's help 
and it's always at hand to all who simply ask. Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you and return, Lord, to us. The countless thousands of your church be with us. Go before us. Fight for us, we pray, until you have led us home in safety at last. Amen.